BJ is here. We're so proud of BJ. We love him so much. He's like, I told him yesterday, he, he gets that job, I think, as a pastor. I had an uncle, Jack Jones, that farmed and pastored in Missouri. I thought, man, that's the perfect job. And then I read Jonathan Edwards' diary, and that's what he did. Of course, he would get lost sometimes between where he was taking his cattle on his horse. So his horse knew where he was going, just deep in study and meditation. I don't think BJ gets lost. He's got too much to do. But BJ, we love you. Come and preach to us. I, I forgot to say, I figured it out. He's the combination of We should call him John Wayne Edwards Johnson. <laughs> How long do I have up here? All right, well, open your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 6. brought this single column Bible, and I don't know why. I never preach from it. This is my memorization Bible, and uh, I'm, I'm kind of uh, very particular about those things, and so I like this Bible for memorization, but not for reading and preaching from, so I'm here this evening. Be patient with me as I, I flip through. We're going to be in chapter 6 and chapter 44 and chapter 45, and that may scare some of you knowing me. Uh, it's taken me a couple years to get through the book of Romans. And if I have till Wednesday, I actually can take that time. Uh, because I've been studying Isaiah over the past couple of years. And, and I, I get locked into these things. And I, I love the literary structure that is present in Isaiah. And I wish I understood it better. I, I wish I was uh, more deeply placed into it that I could... Uh, give you a more clear, coherent picture from it. But what I want to bring you tonight from it is the encouragement that I have found in it. And uh, as I have found great encouragement in it, um, I have also found great joy, great, great strength, uh, great motive for doing the work of the ministry. And so as we, we get into it, you may feel like you're getting shot with a shotgun at a certain point. And if you know what I'm saying, like the buckshot just kind of goes out and everywhere, you know, the good doctor here is like a sniper, all right? He, he sends that bullet out, and it lands where it's supposed to and where he intends. And I'm more of the AK-47 fellow. I come in and I spray, and, and, you know, there you go. So I hope that you're able to get something from it, and by God's grace, he will... Uh, take my scattered mind and, and bring some clarity. I, I apologize going into this, but uh, I do get ramped up and revved up. And I used to get uncomfortable with that um, because that's kind of me. And so I tried to keep me out of the pulpit. And, and then I just was like, you know what? Um, God has put me in a place to minister with the gifts that I have been given according to who I am. And so you are going to get all of me tonight. All right? So... Let's start with just reading. Uh, we're going to read Isaiah chapter 6, um, the whole thing. I am going to pray for us, and we will begin. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, 
Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin is atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Then I said, Here am I, send me. And he said, Go and say to this people, Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Then I said, how long, O Lord? And he said, until cities lie waste without inhabitant and houses without people and the land is a desolate waste and the Lord removes people far away. And the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. And though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again, like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. Father, I, I beg this evening that you would strengthen me as your servant to clearly proclaim your word, the truth, the beauty of who you are and who we are in light of who you are. And I pray, I ask, that you would encourage our hearts, that you would strengthen us and build us up, that we might be found faithful to do the work of the ministry that you have called us to do. I thank you for the time that you've given us. I thank you for each person that is here. Bless us, please, we pray. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The title for this sermon is An Age of Increased Difficulty. Stop being a sissy. I mean, that's, it's, yeah, stop being a sissy. Why is that my title? Because one day I was, I had a five sermon day, and this is not an uncommon thing for me, and, and I listened to like, the same text preached five different times in the Southern Baptist meeting, and then I jump in the car, and lo and behold, the same passage, the passage that I just read to you, was being preached again, and I was like, Lord, are you trying to tell me something? What, what, why am I hearing the same message over and again? And why has each message been more of a complaint than anything? It strikes me that you could read the first eight verses of Isaiah chapter 6 and come away with the complaint that people aren't doing enough. And this is a really hard 
era and age that we live in. And I know that the ministry is a struggle, but, you know, we just, you know, need to take the glorious call of God and go out and do it better. And so when I heard that, I vomited in my mouth a little bit, and I stood up and felt kind of sissified from it. And I went and sat in the car, and I put in a sermon thinking, I'm going to listen to a good sermon on this passage. And then it was like the same thing. And I'm like, what in the world? Why are we so weak? Why have we begun to produce snowflakes that when we have the most difficult thing that comes, they wilt and melt under the pressure of the difficulty of life? Now, I'm not up here to tell you that life is not difficult, and I'm not up here to tell you that there's not some manner of increasing difficulty in our day and age. I'm not, I'm not going to say that there is no difficult place, and I'm not going to say that there aren't challenges wherever God places you. But one of the things that I am most sick to death and tired of is hearing that Wyoming is a difficult place to minister amongst my Southern Baptist brothers. Oh, it's a hard place. You've really sacrificed going out there to Wyoming. No, I haven't. Shut up. These are my people. This is my place. And we may be hard-nosed, but this is my folk. Come on, man. And I began to realize it was it's not so much about the place, but it's about the sissy who finds themselves in that place, complaining about what God has placed upon them and not understanding with great clarity who they are and who God is. And that's, I've begun to tell my children that don't forget who you are. And don't forget whose you are. Don't forget who God is. And you see, our sissified nature comes about by the sheer fact that we forget who God is. And that's why when we get to this passage in Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 6, we, we stop at verse 8, or verse 9, verse 8, and we like the romantic ministerial ideal of, here I am, send me. You have a most glorious scene and picture of the heavenly throne room, uh, of just the majesty, power, and might, and presence of God, and, and it gets you kind of excited, right? And then, what am I going to say? Um, tell them good news, and people are going to get saved, and the nation's going to obey. And what does he say? In case you've forgotten, go and say to this people, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull, and their ears heavy, and blind their eyes, lest they see with their e with their eyes and hear with their ears. And it goes on, and that doesn't sound like very much fun. The doctor probably could help me with this. I, I remember reading at one time in a place, and I couldn't find it again in my preparation and study for this. But it, it is church history, maybe, or, or church tradition, maybe not scripture. But Isaiah died with one convert, and he is potentially the guy that was sawn in half in Hebrews 11. What a ministry. Forty years under the four kings under Uzziah and Jotham and Ahaz and Hezekiah, and just to stand there and, and come up even to Hezekiah at the well in chapter, I think, 10-ish or 11-ish, right about after here, and say, hey, man, you better stop what you're doing or God's going to come and get you. And all the way through, he's given this promise that people are going to be taken out and all the people are going to be exiled, with also the promise that he's going to use Cyrus to bring the people back in, but he's just warning them, standing there, begging them, repent and believe, trust in the Lord. What, what kind of ministry is that called to? And I'm not saying that everybody is going to be called to an Isaiah ministry. And I'm not saying that this is something that we all have to look forward to. But what I am saying is sometimes God calls us to places that are difficult and circumstances that are full of suffering and pain. 
Sometimes it is going to be placing us into a position of extreme difficulty, and we're not called to be sissies about it, but we're called to remember who our God is and the heavenly throne room from which he called us and appointed us to the task that he has placed us within. The reason I want to go to, and and if I had the time, I would just take us from chapter 6 all the way to chapter 55. I actually really love chapter 40 through 55. And and just show you some of the messages or sermons and ways and, and warnings that Isaiah presented to the people. But I want to take you to chapter 44 and 45 and show you that there is a particular way that Isaiah preached. I don't know if this is right. I think it is, though, that this is a progressive compilation of sermons. I I don't know how many times he preached or how many ways he preached, but in 40 years, I'm sure he spoke a lot. And and this seems to be the, the chronological flowing of his prophetic messages to a people over a 40-year time period in which he was not just prophesying for the proclamation of what is going to come in the future, but seeking to get the people at that current particular point in history to repent and believe for the forgiveness of their sins, to stop going off and sacrificing to other gods in other places, but actually believe that there is one God, and that is the God who has called them, and that is the God whom they should worship. Now, mind you, this is one who has received a a call of the gospel in which he says, go and you're not going to have much success, man, according to the measures of worldly success. And you would think that that would maybe color his message. Well, nobody's going to believe me anyway, so I'm not going to tell them to believe. But that's not what we find. Their heads are going to get hard and their hearts are going to get harder. They are going to become blind. They aren't going to see. And yet, Isaiah presents the beauty and reality of not only who they are, but who God is and what he has called them to do as a vehicle for the glory of God amongst the nations. The very thing that his church is called to be, the very thing that you and I are called to be as ministers of the gospel. You see, because it's not just the pastor or the pastors that are ministers of the gospel. I'm actually called in the name of Jesus Christ to preach, teach, and equip the saints to do the work of the ministry. It is, it is us, the, the pastors, that are the trainers of those that go and do the work of the ministry. And absolutely, I'm doing the work of the ministry right alongside of you, and that's how we train you. But this is not something that is my task or Paul's task or, or the professional minister's task alone. We in Christ are called to do the work of the ministry. And I think looking at Isaiah here is of great value to us. So that we don't sit through a five-sermon day and just take, and I call it abuse. I'm such a snowflake. I'm such a sissy. I, I've been abused. I've been sermoning, sermon abused. I don't know what that is, but I'll come up with a technical term for it where they just press on my will and say, you need to do more and you need to do harder and you need to get after it better. You're not good enough because my personality takes that and I run with it. I'll do harder, I'll do more, I'll work work faster, I'll do it better. But as we look into the words of Isaiah, that's not what he says. He doesn't press on your will. He gives you a majestic and magnificent picture of who God is and who we are in light of that. He even gives you a picture of the difficulty that you will face. 
and then presents the gospel message that we are to proclaim. And this is what I want us to see. Isaiah 44. But now hear, O Jacob, my servant, Israel, whom I have chosen. Thus says the Lord who made you, who formed you from the womb and will help you. Fear not, O Jacob, my servant, Jeshurun, whom I have chosen. For I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour my spirit upon your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. They shall spring up among the grass like willows by flowing streams. This one will say, I am the Lord's. Another will call on the name of Jacob. And another will write on his hand, the Lord's, and name himself by the name of Israel. Now, I don't know about you, but I remember reading these things years ago and going, what? What does that have anything to do with what you're talking about? I I don't get it. Sounds like a lot of fancy words. I get lost about verse 5 or 6. I've lost the point of what he's talking about already, let alone connecting chapter 44 to chapter 6. Think with me here real quick. Chapter 6 seems to be the call of ministry to Isaiah in which he is given a most difficult ministry. Chapter 1 through 5 seems to be an introduction about the position of Israel as a nation and and the statement of what they are doing and the call to repentance that is issued in those passages. Then from that point, from chapter 7 following, you seem to enter into the chronological historical order after he stops following the dictates of Jotham the king, and, 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 or Uzziah, sorry, and Jotham the king is then ruling, and he begins to prophesy against the nation, but also call the nation to repentance the entire time, casting not only the repentant belief for the forgiveness of your sins, but also presenting a vision of who God is and who they are. So what we come to right here is a statement of who they are. You are my chosen, you are my servant. And even though in the passages before he says, you're going to be pulled out of here and you're going to be taken away and you're going to be exiled, guess what he's saying? I am going to raise up children for myself. You are my servant. You are my chosen. Don't forget who you are. And that's what I get from that passage. Know who you are and whose you are. If we understand whose we are, if we are understanding that the creator God has made us his own, It's not so much that we know him, but it's that he knows us, as the apostle says. That he has made us his children, that he has set his affection upon us, that he shows us love and grace and mercy and has made us to be the bride of his own possession, a people of his own choosing. What a wonderful place that is. What a wonderful place to recognize that the God of all creation has set his affection upon his people and he calls us his own. That is something that all too often I I just kind of pass over and go, yep, you're the creator. We're your servants, Uh uh-huh. Do you know how significant that is? And how foolish that is to pass over? This is a statement of encouragement. This is a statement of strengthening. And this is what he wants us to get. But hear, O now, Jacob, my servant. Hear, my people. And then what he promises is what he is going to spring forth, what he is going to water and bring forth the fruit of. He continues on, thus says the Lord. 
The King of Israel and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last. Besides me, there is no God. And he goes and he explains with greater detail who he is. Besides me, there is no God. Think about that. Think about that in the terms of Bible stories. Does anybody remember when the Philistines took the ark? All right. And so who's the God that the ark gets set next to? Dagon, the fish god. All right. And what happens with the ark and Dagon, the fish god? Dagon the fish god, next morning they come in, he's laying over on his side, you know. There's no God beside me. This idol is no God. They set him back up, they're like, hmm, that's funny. Um, So he comes back in the next morning, and what happens then? It is over, the head is off, the hands are off, and they're set on the threshold. It didn't just like fall over, and oh man, the statue broke. No, he has been decapitated, his hands have been removed. In demonstration, divinely speaking, there is no God beside me. And there is swift judgment exercised in any that would stand. Folks, that is, in my estimation, an extremely strong stance and position. Behold, O Israel, this is your God. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts. Not just the Lord of some, not just the Lord of these few over here, the Lord of hosts. I am the first and I am the last. Beside me there is no God. This is who your God is. Who is like me? Let him proclaim it. Let him declare and set it before me. In other words, are there any competitors? Are there any takers? Are there anybody who wants to come and stand against me? Let him do it. Our God is not a God who is sitting there afraid of competition. He says, bring it. Let them say if they are like me, and I will show them that they are not. My God is not a sissy. Who is like him? Let him proclaim it. Let him declare and set it before me. Since I appointed an ancient people, let them declare what is to come and what happened. And I've been stuck on that verse for a while. God's people become the vehicle of declaring who God is and what he has done. And that is why he has made himself known to us in very particular and and clear terms. And this is something that we should rejoice in and proclaim to others. We should make it known. And in making it known, what does he say? Fear not, nor be afraid. Have I not told you from of old and declared it? And you are my witnesses. You bear testimony to the effect of who he is. This is why we should remember who he is and whose we are. Is there a God besides him? There is no rock. I know not any. Now, if you're like me, there's many times where you've been reading across and the subheadings that have been put in by the editors are, are sometimes difficult for you to navigate. At least they have been for me anyways uh, in, in my base reading form. And I come across and it's like, why the transition? I'm really getting excited here and you just, just, just bring it down. Now I have to start asking why, why is this here? Why is there from verse nine to verse 20 a tirade about the folly of idolatry? Because in being those who are witnessing, who are bearing testimony to the effect of who God is and who we are as his people, there are gonna be those 
who stand and say, no, there is another God. And look, I made him out of wood. And then I, you know, warmed my food by him. And then now I'm warming myself by him. And then I'm going to, you know, fashion this over here with him. And if you take the time, you have homework tonight, by the way, uh, and read verse 9 and following, and I know Dr. Barrick's going to give you some homework too. Um, well, maybe homework. Anyway, um, if you read verse 9 through 17, you're going to see that thing where they, they cry out to that thing, this, this idolatrous activity. And here are the people that we are to be witnessing to, the people that we are to be speaking to who God is. They know not, verse 18, nor do they discern, for he shut their eyes, so they cannot see in their hearts, so they cannot understand. No one considers, nor is there knowledge or discernment to say, half of it is burned in the fire. I also baked bread on its coals. I roasted meat and have eaten. And shall I make the rest of it an abomination? Shall I fall down before a block of wood? feeds on ashes. A deluded heart has led him astray, and he cannot deliver himself or say, is there not a lie in my right hand? These are the people whom we are witnessing to, and these were the people whom we once were. We were once blind. We, we were once deaf and dull. We were once hard-hearted and hard-headed. And here's the magnificent reality of it, is that God in his mercy and grace brought us to a place of seeing and understanding. He is the one who brought life into us and then set us about the work of this ministry and then said that he's going to send us to people who were like us. And again, let it be known very clearly, not all of us are going to have an Isaiah-like ministry in which the end result is potentially being sawn in half. That's not the norm. Praise Jesus. I don't, I don't think that'd be a good idea to saw me in half. I'd complain horribly. But there is going to be the difficulty of coming in and proclaiming the word and not being able to be the one who changes that heart See, that's one of the things that has brought me greater discouragement than anything is my need and desire to control. My need and desire to produce results. You know, I, my, my flesh buys well into the Southern Baptist system most often. Of if you do good, you get good. And if you just apply this method just right, you know, it's just like an equation, a mathematical equation, out, out pops the result. But when I read the scripture and then I walk in the experience of my life, I realize that I, I can't change the human heart. I can't, I can't bring life where there is death. I can't bring sight where there is no sight. I can't bring hearing where there's no ears to hear. And yet, and yet, what am I called to do? To witness and I don't mean witness as in, you know, knocking door to door and opening and, you know, doing the, the antiquated and normalized methodology within our society that thinks of witnessing as that. But I am to bear a testimony to who God is, what he has done and what he will do, what he has promised to us in his son Jesus Christ and whom he has made me to be in him. 
And as I bear witness and testimony to that, it's not just a matter of words that I speak, but it is a matter of life that I live in light of those words that have been spoken. Have you ever heard that ridiculous thing that is credited to some guy that, I don't know whether it's credited him or not, you know, preach the gospel at all times and if necessary use words. You know what, folks? The gospel is proclamation. Words are always necessary. And so is a life that coheres with the words that are spoken. And if we are going to come to a place where we come to people that have no sense to see that there's a lie in their right hands and the gods that they worship are false, we are called to these people and if we are gonna have any strength to come to them over and again when they throw a chair at us, when they reject us, even though they're really rejecting Christ, or when they're just apathetic. I don't deal with people throwing chairs at me. They're afraid it might get thrown back. The thing I deal with probably more than anything is apathy. Just don't care. Just, just have no care. They don't see that what is in their right hand is a lie. They don't see the cultural religion in which they have adopted as damning. They don't see their apathy as being the very thing that is sucking them down to the pit. They don't see it, and they don't see God for who he is. And week in and week out, I not only boil in the pulpit, wanting people to feel and understand and know who God is, but every day out in that community that I live, I want people to know it with this excitement that I am feeling, even at this moment. The very passion for which I burn for Christ inside to help people to know, I want them to grasp it, but I know that even for all of my volume and all of my excitement and all of the tears that I cry and all the fervent prayers that I pray, it is not a matter of those things in which is gonna bring people to Christ. It is him and him alone according to his divine might and power. Because that is where I get my hope in all honesty. It's not just buying the romantic ideal that is preached from the first eight verses of Romans chapter six. Here I am, send me. Yeah, well, at one point in life, I said, here I am, send me with great excitement. And guess what happened? I knocked on door after door after door. I told person after person after person to see no fruit. I must be doing it wrong. Let's read another book. Let's go talk to Paul again. Let's go out and tell more people about Jesus. I told employers about Jesus. I told roommates about Jesus. I told neighbors about Jesus. I told people at the gas station as I was walking by about Jesus. And why are these people not coming to Jesus? Why do you not see that he's as great as I am? Maybe it's because I was yelling at them. I don't know. I'm not sure. <laughs> that may have had something to do with it. Except for the fact that God saves people with people, but he also saves people in spite of people. The messages that were preached by Jonathan Edwards were preached in a monotone while reading his sermons. Oh my goodness. Wouldn't that be boring? Ben Stein ain't got nothing on Jonathan Edwards. 
And when we get to seminary, what do we get taught in the preaching classes? To make sure that our, our points are ordered and we are communicating with a succinct and clear nature that we're not we're using words that are too big, that we're kind of boiling it down to the lowest common denominator and making sure that we repeat our three points. You know, you come in and you tell them what you're going to tell them and then you tell them what you said you were going to tell them and then when you conclude, you tell them what you have told them and then you walk away and they should have it, right? And that's kind of what it is. And that makes sure that the message sits down in the seat of their souls. You know what? I've listened to numerous sermons over my life, and the things that happen to grip me are as a result of God working and showing me who he is. Let's jump to chapter 45. Chapter 45, he begins to talk about using Cyrus. Cyrus is the instrument in his hand to bring his people out of exile into the establishment and the formation of the nation once again to the re-putting up of the, the wall and the temple and all that stuff that, that pictured and symboled their communal life as the nation. And in this passage, we read about our God and who he is. Thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have grasped, to subdue nations before him and to loose the belts of kings, to open doors before him that gates may not be closed. I will go before you and level the exalted places. I will, bring, I will break in pieces the doors of bronze and cut through the bars of iron. I will give you the treasures of darkness and the hordes in secret places that you may know that it is I, the Lord, the God of Israel, who called you by your name for the sake of my servant Jacob and Israel, my chosen. I call you by your name. I name you, though you do not know me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. Beside me, there is no God. And you would think... Yeah, we've got it. You've said it. Besides me, there's no God. Why do you think he continuously repeats that reality? Because sometimes we don't get it, I think. We need to hear it over and again to have that confidently set within our souls that the God that we worship the God that created all that there is, the God who made me and sustains me and upholds me, and you, at this very moment, there is none beside him. There is no one like him. Do you get that? There are not many paths to the top of the mountain. There is only one, and it is through our Lord and our King Jesus. He is the one that is singular. I am the Lord, and there is no other beside me. There is no God. I equip you, though you do not know me that people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none besides me. I am the Lord and there is no other. I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. And if that doesn't take your breath away, maybe I'm just melodramatic because that takes my breath away every time I read it. It takes my breath away to recognize who my God is. And why is he saying this? Not just so that we can marvel at who he is, but that we can have confidence in what he is doing and what he has promised to do. That he is saying he is going to work in this manner amongst his people to bring about his purposes for our sake in the days to come. This is my God and my King. This is not a willy-nilly creator who just kind of 
lets things happen and hopes they all work out for the best. There's no roll of the dice when it comes to who my God is. You know what kind of peace that brings to me? When I have somebody come up to me after a sermon and go, that was, that was the worst thing I've ever heard. I'm like, really? Yeah, it was grammatically incorrect and mildly incoherent. And did you even really think about this before you went up there? And for some reason, I get people that say things like this to me. I'm like, man, maybe if I was a little more gentle in the way I approached people, they wouldn't feel the freedom to come and stab me after the sermon, you know? to the person that tells me that I'm the worst pastor they've ever met and I'm sitting here bleeding before them, laboring with all of my might, doing something that is not characteristically easy for me to do. I was born to build things, not to stand in front of a group of people in soft clothing and tell them what's up. I get along with cows a lot easier than I do with people. And yet God has called me to do this, and so here I am doing it. And what gives me the ability to continue on when the criticisms begin to fall and people don't appreciate the love that I give them? I don't do it for your love or for your approval, my friends. I like being liked, and I hate being hated. And as Paul says, at least we like to be appreciated. However, at the end of all of it, my God and my King is the one whom I serve. And I trust in his work and his might. And you know what? When I read these words about him, I see the absolute sovereign nature of my king in bringing about his purposes of redemption for his people. Shower, O heavens, verse 8, from above, and let the clouds rain down righteousness. Let the earth open that salvation and righteousness may bear fruit. Let the earth cause them to sprout I, the Lord, have created it. And again, that's one of those things that is so hard to, okay, what does that mean? I want to go through a clear definition of each of the words and try and figure out exactly what it means. And when it really comes down to it, the poetic, poetic prose that are written there seem to point to the reality that God is going to bring salvation to the earth and to men, and I have a great confidence that he is going to do that. And I get the joy of being a part of it and even the sorrow of seeing others rejected and pray that God would open their eyes and heart and bring salvation, shower righteousness down upon them. And what a magnificent joy and thing we get to be a part of. Because the way that my mind works is I, I explored kind of like King Solomon, except for not on a grand scale, uh, all the things that the world has to offer, and guess what? It all leaves you miserable and languishing. There genuinely is no joy and no salvation in anything other than the person and power of Jesus Christ, my Lord and my King. There is no good apart from that. And that is why I pour myself into this because of the promise that heavens are going to shower down from above this righteousness and this goodness that God has given to mankind. And I want to be a part of that. And as I'm a part of that and difficulty comes, I come back to this and, and I'm reminded, this is my God. This is his work. And I get to be a part of it. Woe to him who strives with him who formed him, a pot among earthen vessels. Does the clay say to him who forms it, what are you making? 
or your work has no handles. Woe to him who says to the father, what are you begetting? Or to the woman, with what are you in labor? Thus says the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, and the one who formed him, Ask me of things to come. Will you command me concerning my children and the work of my hands? I made the earth and created man on it. It was my hands that stretched out the heavens, and I commanded all their hosts. I have stirred him up in righteousness, and I will make all his ways level. He shall build my city and set my exiles free, not for price or reward, says the Lord of hosts. Now I could preach for three or four hours on that that I just read. Let it suffice to say that as mankind has said, what have you made and what have you done? The pot rebelling against the potter, the creation rebelling against the creator, as that has happened, even in the midst of that, what happens to the rebellious pot? It gets thrown in the pile. In the the ignoble pile, the rejected pile, the judged pile, the useless pile. But what does he say? He's going to build a city. He's going to set his exiles free. He is going to bring salvation. My friends, this is the... This is the amazing thing about Isaiah is when you read across it for the first time, that may not be what you see. You may, you may be like me when I read poetry. <laughs> That's great. That's, that says nothing. You know, it's not like an instruction manual for DeWalt or something like that of putting together something. It's just step one, step two, step three. But I got it. It's a wee bit different. But as you spend time in it, you begin to see that it was woven with a particularity and a purpose to bring encouragement to those to not only understand who God is, but what he is doing. I wish I had more time to finish taking us through the rest, but I want to finish at one place. Verse 22. If you get the time, please read and reread. And if you have more time, read and reread chapters 40 through chapter 55. And you see some of the most beautiful and clear pictures of God and who he is and what he has done and who his people are and what his plans for his creation is. But as I take you to verse 22, after verse 14 and following, it flows through to this point and gives this amazing gospel message that is preached by Isaiah to a people whom God said are going to be dull of hearing and dull of seeing. They are going to have hard heads and hard hearts as a result of it. And yet, what does he do? Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth. Isaiah doesn't come judging those to whom his message is given, thinking that even in their rejection of those things that God has promised that they're going to reject, that the message of the gospel is going to fall in, in an ill way. He understands very clearly that the word of God comes down from heaven and it accomplishes the purpose for which it was sent. He understands that he as a messenger of God has been given a particular task and a particular assignment with the word of God. And so he says it, he speaks it, he writes it, and here it is for us, turn to me. And be saved all the ends of the earth. By myself I have sworn, and from my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return. To me every knee shall bow and every tongue shall swear allegiance. This is what's coming, my friends. This is what we get to be a part of. And we are not in the divine council to see who is and who is not. I know I keep referencing you, but I remember one time you preached a sermon about 
election. And he said it'd be nice if everybody had a big E tattooed on their chest, you know, and just open up. I'm among the elect. All right, welcome in. Man, that'd make evangelism easy, wouldn't it? But that's, that's not our prerogative. That's not our call. God doesn't show us those things except for on the back side in which we see people respond to the message of the gospel, the very message that he was given here to preach and to present to people, the very promise of all of those people to turn to him and find what? Strength and righteousness in the Lord, verse 24, only in the Lord, it shall be said of me, our righteousness and strength. This is what Isaiah is calling the people to, not to find their righteousness and strength in themselves or in their gods or in their deeds or in the things around them, but to find their righteousness and strength in God, in the promises of God. And for us, as we look back to Christ, it is to find our righteousness and our strength in Christ, to see the salvation that he has given to us and rejoice in it and tell the people what God has said in ages past Tell the people what God has presented to us and called us to tell people. I'll finish with this, maybe. I don't know. We'll see. But I remember thinking a long time ago that in my preaching of the gospel and presenting of the gospel, and this is before I became a preacher, and I kind of felt, and this was wrong of me, but I felt that it was this antiquated thing that people couldn't identify with, and I wasn't even sure why I did. It was weird, because I, I knew that Christ saved me. I knew who he was. I knew the life that he gave me. But I began to listen to the world more than the word began to listen to the response of people and what they were saying about the message more than what Christ said. I began to care more about how people perceived me and what people thought of me than what my Lord and King thought of me. And in time, what he did was he broke down that fear of man that existed within me. And if you know how big a deal that is for me, it's huge, because I fear nobody. Knock me down, I'm going to jump up and get back up right in your face again. I fear no one. And I had to humble myself and come and say, yes, I feared man. I feared my dad. I feared my coaches. I feared the people around me. I even feared the, the little girl who weighed 87 pounds. I, I had a fear of that person's rejection of me. And what changed it is when I came to the Word and I began to study and I began to look and I began to see again who my God is and who I am and whom He has made me to be in Him. It wasn't that I gained self-confidence, it's that I gained God-confidence. I gained a confidence not to come to a point in which I labored more diligently to buy into the ministerial idea and just go out and do it but a picture of the majesty and the glory and the might and the power and the splendor and the exalted nature and the supremacy and sovereignty and might and just amazing nature of who my God and my King is brought me to that place, I knew I was going to ruin this, of absolute confidence to speak to whomever, whenever, wherever, however, 
to submit to the Lord's leading. And when discouragement comes and people reject and stuff gets difficult, I come back to that same place. I come back to that same place of encouragement. I come back to that same place of strength. And folks, it's not always easy. It's not always succinct. It's not always pretty. But I labor and beat on the word of God until it yields unto me these nuggets and jewels of gold, of things of surpassing worth. I take my ignorant literary understanding and I spend hours and hours and hours in Isaiah figuring it out, asking questions. There could be many things in which I've failed to understand correctly in Isaiah. But I think the one thing that I understand very clearly is that my God is the Savior from the first to last. He is the righteous one in heaven who does all that he pleases. He is the one that has made me and created me and you and placed us here within this ministry that I don't fully understand. And he will be our strength and our righteousness, as it says at the last there. That strength and righteousness that he rains down on this earth as he brings about his purpose, and I get the joy of being a part of that. Will you join me in that? Maybe not in the same way, maybe not in the same place. Well, maybe you might move to Thermopolis. I've got things for you to do if you do. But wherever God places you, wherever that might be, rest in him and his sovereign might, rest in his goodness, his power, his majesty, and catch a vision for God and who he is, not just do this because I'm supposed to. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your might. We thank you for an evening together. I thank you that you redeemed my life, and I thank you that you've redeemed so many of my brothers and sisters in this room. I pray that as you have redeemed us, that you would strengthen us to do your work to be found faithful and to find great joy even in the midst of difficulty. Find great strength from you even as we struggle. Bless us in this way, please. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.